So even though I don't really have, say, physical memories of my mom, uh, you know, like I, I, I can't tell you what her laugh sounded like or, you know, what it felt like to get a hug or a kiss from her, but I, I very much felt her energy and her presence in my life, like my, my, my entire life. No matter where I am, I'm always on the lookout for new people to talk to and new stories to tell. To stay on top of my game, I follow a lot of changemakers on Instagram, people who are paving a new way of talking about immigrants and our stories. For example, something I love about Riz Ahmed's Instagram page is that he speaks openly about issues such as Islamophobia and representation in film. He also often uses his Instagram as a platform to amplify the work of others. Back in September, he posted a photo from his visit to Fahamu Peko's gallery exhibition at the UNC Chapel Hill. And I was intrigued. As I dug deeper into Fahamu's story, I grew more and more amazed by his work. Fahamu takes on such complicated topics as Black masculinity, stereotypes, and Black identity in his work with a deft touch that leaves a profound impact. And I'm so incredibly excited to have you here for Hamu's story today. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on my show today. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. First, I saw your art on Riz Ahmed's Instagram and I was intrigued. It's amazing and I have a lot of questions, but I want to start from the very basics. You now live in Atlanta, a city that you say you came to for a fresh start, right? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but I grew up mostly in a small town in South Carolina called Hartsville, South Carolina. And where is your family from? My father was born in Panama, and my mother was actually from Hartsville, South Carolina. But they met in Brooklyn. Oh, interesting. So what was childhood like? Were you ever in Brooklyn, or were you like, did you live in South Carolina from the very beginning? No, no, I uh, lived in Brooklyn until I was about five. And then I actually ended up uh, losing my mother and my father uh, around the age of five. And uh, my siblings and I were then adopted by uh, relatives of my mother and grew up in South Carolina. I I was listening to a couple of your interviews where you did mention that um, you lost your mother at an early age, but you mm-hmm. still feel her presence. How do you make sure that she is still present with you? Is it because you were only five, I guess, or four, right? When you lost your mother. And that's at a very young age. I don't remember anything from when I was four. How do you keep her memory alive? (laughs) Um, So, you know, the the surreal part about that is that, you know, the love of of, of a parent and especially the love of a mother is something that's so enduring that it's uh, I, I, I I can't imagine my life without feeling that kind of love. So even though I don't really have, say, physical memories of my mom, uh, you know, like I, I, I can't tell you what her laugh sounded like or, you know, what it felt like to get a hug or a kiss from her. But I, I very much felt her energy and her presence in my life, like my, my, my entire life. You know, I always kind of think about moments in my life where, uh, you know, I might have been about to make a wrong decision or maybe I was feeling particularly 
uh, down or lost or something like that. And there would inevitably be individuals, people who may just kind of be passing through my life for like a brief moment or something like that. They will say something or, or do something that like, you know, changes my direction. And in those moments, I always feel my mother's hand. And so it's it's been a really sort of, like I said, a, a, a kind of surreal experience, I think, in terms of that relationship that I have with with my mom. But, you know, in terms of keeping her memory alive, you know, it's really been a matter of, you know, other family members who share stories with me, you know, and just little quirky kind of things. Like, you know, I remember one time, you know, I have this like playlist of music that I play when I'm just kind of relaxing or, you know, cleaning up around the house or something. And once uh, my brother was hanging out with me, uh, and my brother's six years older than me, so he has a, a much more um, deeper, intimate relationship uh, with, with memory of my mom. But anyway, I was listening to this music and my brother heard what I was playing and he was like, Where, where'd you get this music from? And I was like, it's just stuff that I like. And he's like, this is the stuff that mom would play all the time, like every Saturday morning when she was cleaning up. These are the songs that she would play. Wow. And so, you know, there's there's no way that I, I would have known that, you know what I mean? But it's <laughs> it's very much a part of, of me and a part of who I am. And very, very, you know, it's a very real feeling. And, and Fahamu, in terms of the community you grew up in, in South Carolina, how did it inform your perception of yourself through your teenage years when you were growing up? What was the impact that the community itself had on you uh, as, as a teenager? Uh, you know, to be quite honest, my, my childhood uh, was not the most pleasant. You know, I had a lot of, you know, really rough moments growing up. You know, I mean, aside from the trauma of losing my parents, uh, you know, the, the um, environment that I grew up in, in in South Carolina was not a very, what what can I say? It wasn't a very pleasant experience ultimately. But even in that, there were certainly people and, you know, individuals who were around who saw something in me that I didn't always see in myself. And uh, I, I'm, I'm always very grateful for, for those individuals and for their interventions. You know, I've always really, really loved uh, drawing and making art and you know, I, I'll never forget the kind of encouragement that I would receive from like my art teachers in school, you know, who, you know, really pushed me and challenged me and and, and, and uh, made me feel that what I was doing was something of value. We were brought up in a very, very strict environment. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of like going out or, you know, doing social things like hanging out with friends and stuff like that. But you know, we were allowed to like go to church, for example, and the church community that I was a part of, you know, were, were also very much um, nurturing and encouraging of, of me and my my talents and abilities and, and really kind of, you know, provided a, a space uh, for me and my siblings, I, I would say, to, you know, to, to feel loved and to feel embraced and supported. Um, one of my favorite memories from that time was when I graduated high school, you know, at my church, they would always honor the graduates, you know. And um, so uh, right before graduation, they had a special ceremony where they would present, you know, all of the graduates with a gift. And uh, I think it was like a Bible or something that they gave each of us. And they, you know, brought us up and, you know, announced to the congregation, like, you know, this person is 
going to be doing this. This person is going to this college. This person is going to the military, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they announced that I was going to be going to our college and, you know, everybody cheered. And after the ceremony was over, several people from the church came and gave me separate gifts. You know, some gave me money. Some gave me um, one, one couple in, in particular gave me this organizer. It was like a, a leather bound planner that had like, you know, things for like keeping names and addresses. You could take notes, calendars and things like that. Um, it was a really small, you know, kind of gift, but it meant so much to me because, you know, with it, they were, they, they said to me that, that they really believed in me and believed in what I would be able to do. You know, they, uh, this couple was an elderly couple and they were like, you know, we've seen you, you know, since you were a little boy and, and, you know, uh, you have so much talent and you, you know, you're so bright, you're so smart and we really think you're going to go far in life. And, you know, we wanted to give you a small token of our appreciation just to, you know, help you stay organized when you go off to college and, you know, help you to, you know, keep track of the the people that, that are important in your life, you know? And it was just a, like a really small gesture, but it meant so much that they had noticed me. I, I think for a, a lot of my childhood, I, I kind of felt invisible. And talking about your brilliance, um, I was listening to your TED Talk in which you say that you were as far removed from the stereotypes of being young, black, and masculine uh, that one could be, basically. And you list three examples. You say you were studious and accomplished. You never, you were never in a gang. <laughs> and you sucked at basketball. I see a bit of humor in that, uh, which we will talk about later. But can you expand a little bit on this? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, part of that was just, you know, and it, it, this this is something that I think is, is, is pervasive and it continues to this day that, ideas about black men and black male potential are very limited to certain spaces and certain uh, interpretations. You know, if you watch a lot of television and movies, you know, the the black male characters, you know, are, are predominantly people who are like in gangs and, yeah. you know, they're yeah. violent, they're fighting, they're shooting, there's, you know, all these kinds of things, or they're playing sports. It's not a whole lot of range. And, you know, any black male figures that are, or I should say that were, say, for example, like a doctor or a lawyer or someone, you know, that society may, quote unquote, deem more appropriate, you know, those people were looked down upon, they were emasculated. And, uh, you know, so there was this kind of culture, I think, around Black masculinity that was really rooted in these very rigid uh, stereotypes and these very hyper-masculine representations that didn't necessarily fit who I was. You know, the the idea of being an individual, of, of the uniqueness of my being, being something that could be celebrated, especially when I was growing up, was a very, very far off idea. You know, everyone around me, everyone that I knew uh, was trying very much to be like everyone else. Even me, you know, I was trying to fit in as much as I could, but it never really fit. It didn't, it always felt awkward on me, you know, the, the sort of like bravado and the, you know, being tough and, you know, the, the kind of aggression stuff that was expected of me as a black male. Like it, it, you know, I did what I could do. I did what felt best to me, but it always felt awkward. 
And this is so interesting because despite the fact that you were doing brilliantly well, you still internalized that fear. And when you moved to, to Atlanta, again, as I was prepping for the interview, I was I saw a lot of your interviews and articles and stuff. And you said that when you moved to Atlanta, you were older, but you still watched your own self die over and over again. Why do you think that media and society doesn't represent Black community, Muslim community, Latinx community in multiplicity of characters that is is the reality? And why are we always confined to these stereotypes and we say, see them over and over again? You know, I think largely Western society continues to perpetuate this sort of idea that dehumanizes non-white bodies, hmm. that dehumanizes non-white people. And maybe it's because, you know, to humanize black and brown bodies would mean that Western society has to reconcile with the sort of, not even the sort of, but reconcile with the atrocities that they have imposed on non-white bodies. You know, and and this is just, you know, a fact. You know, I mean, I know that for some people that may be a difficult thing to hear, but it's the truth. You know, there's so much about the way that uh, non-white people are represented in media, represented even in art, you know, historically, traditionally, that that works to present them as objects and not necessarily as human beings. And I think that that continues, um, you know, to this day. But, you know, in order for us to move past that, I think you know, everyone has to take take account and take responsibility for their actions in that, you know, like, yeah. And you're doing that. You um, are a great artist and I've seen your work and it's brilliant. When did you become interested in art and when did you develop an interest in art and how has that helped you um, in a way reconceptualize um, your identity? So I've, I've always been an artist since I can hold a pencil. That may even be a somewhat indirect description, right? Uh, because even though I loved drawing and I loved making images uh, and making things, I, I never really thought about art, like, you know, uh, with a capital A until I got to college. You know, it, this was just something that I did, you know, like I, I remember being about five or six years old and you know, drawing little cartoons and stuff in my notebooks and, you know, friends and teachers and stuff responding to it. And, you know, I, I, I uh, relished uh, the attention. And so I just kind of continued doing it. And, you know, it, and it made me feel good, you know, to to be able to to have something, you know, that people appreciated, that people liked, that people liked me for. And so I just, you know, I, I kept doing it. And I knew, you know, from an early age that I wanted to make a career as a person who made art. Uh, and so when I was about nine years old and I, I learned about the, the profession of cartoon animation, I figured that that's what I would do because, you know, here's a way that I could continue to, to draw and make art, uh, but also make a living, you know, because everyone would always joke around or not even maybe joke, but say that, you know, in order to be an artist, you got to be a starving artist or, you know, you won't, make any money until after you're dead, you know, stuff like that. So I would hear 
those kinds of things. And I, I was trying to figure out, okay, there, there, there must be a way to make a living at this stuff. And so I, I landed on cartoon animation. But when I got to college, um, in my first day of class, the very first class, the uh, professor took the attendance and then he turned around and wrote, what is art on the board? And I had never, ever considered that before. And that was like the beginning of this sort of like undoing that that took a number of years, you know, to sort of like pull apart all of the things that I had come to accept as fact, as reality. That one question, you know, was like a loose thread on a sweater. Did you have an answer? Like what popped up in your mind when when you saw that question? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Honestly, I, I mean, I, I, I really sat there like dumbfounded for, for a while. And I listened, you know, other people in the class, you know, gave responses and, you know, and, and all of it, you know, whatever they said, it just none, none of it had any weight, like none, none of it felt substantial, you know. And, you know, I remember the professor saying that there was no real wrong or right answer. It was just something to think about. But it was a question that plagued me for the rem- the the rest of my undergraduate career. I, I thought about that question every day. And like I said, it was like a, a, a loose thread on a sweater. And the, the, the more I thought about it, the more, you know, I pulled at it, the more the sweater came undone. And it wasn't until my senior year, uh, and actually when I did my senior exhibition, that I finally had an answer for that question. So what is the answer? So I'll, I'll tell you about the exhibition and then I can kind of give you what I what my answer ultimately became. So, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, I lost my mom when when I was four years old. But uh, what I didn't mention was that she was actually murdered by my father, who was suffering with mental illness. Um, and he had been in and out of psychiatric uh, care for a, a few years. But, you know, during the during this time in the like mid to late seventies, you know, the, the, uh, diagnoses around schizophrenia specifically was, was still, you know, in development. Like people were still trying to figure out that, that illness. Um, but anyway, um, they kept sending my father home despite his protestations about his mental state. He ultimately ended up killing my mom. And then he, took himself to the police station with me and my siblings in tow and turned himself in. And that was the last time that I saw him until I was 21 years old. Mm. But anyway, uh, when I was about a junior in college, uh, one day I was listening to an album by a hip hop group called Goody Mob. Um, They're out of Atlanta. And, you know, in the mid nineties, they were like really huge, but they had this one song on their album called Guess Who? where each one of the guys in the group talks about the impact that their mother's love had had on them. And as I listened to the song, you know, I, I couldn't help but reflect on the impact that my that my own mother's love had had on me, even though I didn't know her like in a in a physical sense. I I'd always felt a really, really deep connection to her. And um, as I listened to that song, I I, I began to make work about about my mom and about specifically about the the power of that love mm-hmm. and um 
as I um, began to to work through these ideas a bit more, I, I, I went to my siblings for the first time and I asked them to recount what they remembered from the night that our mom died. And mind you, uh, this happened when I was four years old. At this point, I'm now 20. We had never spoken about it. We had never uttered a single word to to each other about what happened that night or what we remembered to to each other or to anyone else for that matter. And so as they began to tell me their stories, I began to realize that, you know, what I remember from that night was actually pretty accurate. And, you know, I took their, their recollections along with mine and I created a body of work that retold the, the, the night um, that our mom died in, in that brownstone apartment. And um, uh, this became an exhibition that was my senior exhibition. And as I worked on it, I, I tried really hard to, to articulate what it is that I was attempting to do with this work. You know, I had to have an artist statement and, you know, my, uh, my advisor was, you know, constantly on me about providing a statement you know, what, what are you, what does this mean? What are you, why are you doing this? And, and I couldn't answer those questions, but I had to do it. I just felt compelled to do it. Anyway, um, when the exhibition was finally completed and installed, um, the night of the opening, you know, my, my brother and sisters were there, some of my cousins, but many people from the community, from my school, from, you know, Atlanta generally were there at the opening. And I watched people react profoundly to the work. Some people were in tears. People came up to me and shared with me like, hey, you know, I haven't spoken to my brother in 17 years because we had a fight and your work makes me want to reach out to him and and try to fix whatever happened. Or, you know, I was abused as a child and your work gives me the courage to to address that abuse. And, you know, like all these are the kinds of responses I was getting to the work. And as I observed, you know, people interacting and, and reacting to the work, I realized in that moment that that was what art was. Mm. And that's what art should be. And I decided in that moment that I didn't want to just make art that was, you know, like pretty pictures. You know, I, I wanted to make art that could help and heal and, you know, move us to be better. And yeah, that's that's what I ultimately realized. Like art has the capacity to to shape us to um to inspire and to reflect not only the world that we live in but the world that we want to live in and i think that that's a powerful thing that, that's absolutely beautiful and powerful Fahama, you are a father now, and you mentioned somewhere that now you're trying to create art um, so that you can answer critical questions for your son. And I want to talk about your specific series, Gravity Series. Mm -hmm. Can you describe it? Sure. Um, so Gravity is a series that really considers kind of what I was alluding to before about the ways that our culture and particularly the language around Black males and Black male potential can be debilitating. You know, again, when I was growing up, you know, I would always hear these, like, really terrible statistics about Black men. You know, like, mm. I was more likely to end up in jail than in college. Um, I was, you know, more likely to be killed, you know, by another Black man than, you know, to die in any other way. I was more likely to be dead before I was 25. Like all of these kinds of like really harsh, dark, 
sad, depressing, traumatizing statistics about my potential. And, you know, those, 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 those narratives, those, those perceptions, you know, impacted me so much that even when I was in college, as as you stated before, like I, I, I just kept waiting on something really terrible to happen to me because, you know, I've been told all my life that this was going, these things were going to happen. Like I, you know, I was predisposed to, you know, these kinds of traumatic experiences and, you know, I, I wanted to combat that with, with gravity. I wanted to to do something, you know, to 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 approach that, to address that. And so, gravity is 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 a double entendre. It refers to the physical concept of gravity, as in, you know, the force of gravity, you know, that that compels us to the earth. But it also is gravity in the sense of like something being grave and serious, and how these these uh, statistics and stereotypes have the potential of weighing down black males before they even ever have a chance to fly. Talking about that, what was your takeaway from it? Because I I also see that through your art, you're grappling with questions as well. You're learning and evolving. Yeah. So with with gravity, the takeaway was ultimately the 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 uh, driving question, which is if we were to change the way that we talked to black men about their potential and especially black boys about their potential, could they defy gravity? And so that that's kind of, you know, what what my my approach and my thinking was, you know, like that, you know, there I, I, I see so many young men make a decision to give up, to make a decision to practice a kind of apathy, because so much of the world feels stacked against you in the first place. So it's kind of like, why even try? And so with, with gravity, I, I wanted to approach that. I wanted to approach it not just from the, 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 the space of being a black male, but also being now an older adult who sometimes finds himself buying into those same ideas that, that are so prevalent in society that I have to check myself. You know, when, when I see a group of young black men hanging out, you know, should I be afraid? Should I feel threatened? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. because so much of society tells me that that group of people is threatening. But when you engage with them, you find out like, you know, these like, like I'm a father, like this, these, this, this is my son. Like, these are my son. You know what I mean? Like, this is my son and his friends. This is my daughter's friends. Like, you know, these are young people who are going through the world and figuring things out the same way that I had to. So what am I afraid of, you know? And so the Gravity uh, series was really about, you know, provoking those kinds of questions and dialogues and and pushing us to think differently about the young people that we see, to, to, to engage them rather than to judge them. And you've also your recent exhibition, Do or Die, that's like, it's it's paying homage to young Black men who have been victims of racial profiling and police violence. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And you also mention uh, this practice called IFA. It's, it's an African tradition. Can you talk a little bit about its central tenets and also how did you incorporate that into your art and how did you pay tribute to those young men? So I'll, I'll 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 go back into my story a little bit if that's okay. Yeah, um, absolutely. Bring us back forward. So around 
you know, after I graduated from college, you know, uh, and, and I had this really profound experience with this work around my mom, I, I, I continued in that sort of direction for a little while. But rather than focusing specifically on my mom, I found myself making these like portraits of individuals that I, I could not directly name who they were. They were faces that sort of just came to me, like appeared to me in, in, in vision, like, uh, you know, just sort of coming out of my subconscious mind. And so often people would ask me, like, who, who's that? And I would just say that they were guardian angels, like guardian spirits. And this was also, you know, sort of preempted by, you know, at the time I had a, a, a job that I really disliked. And I was really sort of like frustrated and, you know, unhappy, you know, at my lot in life, uh, having to work a menial job and stuff like that to kind of make ends meet. And so as I would, you know, travel to and from that job, you know, by public transit, oftentimes I would find these like feathers on the ground, you know, as I walked and I would keep them and put them in my sketchbooks. And I would tell myself that those, the feathers were signs from like my guardian angels who were reminding me that they were there so that I wouldn't lose you know, faith or wouldn't lose hope. Um, and so I would keep these feathers and I would work them into these drawings and portraits that I was making. And, uh, you know, people, again, would, would ask me to, you know, kind of explain what I was doing in the work. And I, 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 I couldn't quite articulate what it was that I was doing. It just, you know, I was just really sort of like feeling and responding. Anyway, um, one day I was in my uh, studio and a friend of mine came in who I hadn't seen in a few years and he was dressed in all white. And I asked him, like, well, why are you dressed like that? Mm. And he told me that he had just come back from Nigeria, where he had been initiated to become a Babalawo. And I'm like, a what? It's a, a priest in um, a, a tradition called Ifa. And, I, you know, again, I didn't really know what he was talking about. I'd never heard of this before. But as we were talking, this young woman who uh, had just brought on to be like a receptionist, came around the corner and she heard us talking and she was like, you're a Babalawo? My dad is a Babalawo. And then the two of them are having this conversation and I'm looking at the two of them like, what are you talking about? Like, what is <laughs> So anyway, after after my friend left, she asked me if I wanted to, she's, she mentioned that her father was a Babalawo again and that he had an elate, um, which is a temple that was not too far from where we lived. And uh, she asked if I wanted to go. And I was like, sure, I, I want to see this. I want to check this out. So the next time that they met was uh, on the first Sunday of, of the month, which happened to be the Sunday at this particular Elay that they do their uh, service venerating the ancestors. And so when I got there, uh, and this is not hyperbole or anything like that. When I got there, you get to the door, you have to take your shoes off. Mm -hmm. And when I stepped across the threshold, I instantly felt at home, like I, I can't describe it. It just was like, I belong here. And that day I listened to, you know, the the service and, and it was unlike any kind of service I'd ever been to before. There was no like, like preacher or person who's like officiating. Uh, we all sat in a circle. We mostly sang songs and played drums and, you know, people sat around and in a circle and, and shared you know, different experiences that they've had. They talked about the different symbolisms and icons of the veneration of the ancestors in this tradition and why it was important and why 
you know, it was necessary to to venerate the ancestors in these ways. And as I listened, everything that they were describing, everything that they were talking about related to uh, the ancestors was stuff that I was doing in my artwork. I, I just didn't have the language for it. And so now all of a sudden I had this vocabulary to explain what it was that I was doing. And, 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 and ever since then, Ifa has been a major part of not just my artwork, but also of who I am. It, it's given me a language and given me a, a voice um, to, to, to express myself and my, my perceptions and my views. And so I say, I'll tell that story to bring it all the way back to, to do or die. When I was invited to do that exhibition at the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art, the invitation came as a result of the killing of Walter Scott, who was a black man who was shot in the back by a police officer in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this was, you know, now I, I can't, I don't even remember the number, but at this point in time, this is 2015, at least there had been at least a dozen high profile killings of unarmed black men by police officers, you know, starting, you know, maybe from uh, 2012 with Trayvon Martin. It was just yeah. like this succession of killings of these unarmed black men and boys. Uh, by police officers with impunity. And so when I was invited to do the show, my initial reaction was to create some kind of memorial, but that just felt too much like I was affirming the the kind of violence and, and the trauma of that violence on on, on Black subjectivity. And I, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that would instead be in resistance to it, that would fly in the face of this threat of death. And so the exhibition Do or Die is exactly that. It approaches this violence and approaches the threat of this violence using Ifa as a kind of shield against, you know, the harm uh, and the trauma that this threat imposes. And so rather than thinking of the people who have been killed as victims or thinking of ourselves as potential victims, Ifa uh, gives a language that allows us to understand the power of 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 being able to strike a balance between our lived experience and and death so that the threat of death that is is levied against us doesn't have the same kind of sting. Like you can't threaten me with death because I know that through Ifa, I'm much more than this physical body. So is it like immortalizing as well, those souls, right? Yeah, in a way, yeah, for sure. Because, um, you know, in the ancestor... Ancestors are, are they're determined in uh, the Ifa tradition is egungun. The egungun are living spirits. Like they don't have physical form, but they are very much present and very much active and very much essential to uh, those of us who are here physically. And they are sort of first line when it comes to the spiritual world. I wanted to ask you something that I noticed in your art. You always use, at least the ones that I have seen, you use your own body. Um, uh -huh. Is there a reason behind that? Because every um, portrait that I saw, I felt like 
it was you. And then I realized that, no, it was your body and you were trying to project something else onto the audience through that. Was there a reason or is there a reason why you do that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you 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 hit it exactly on the head. It is it is my body, but it is not me. Like it's not self-portraits in a, in a classical sense of self-portraiture. Instead, I see myself as a sort of performer and the paintings and drawings themselves are extensions of that performance where, uh, you know, ideas about black subjectivity or about the black body are expressed and articulated on my body as a way of sort of deconstructing these ideas, as a way of picking them apart, as a way of critiquing them and allowing my audience to do the same. You know, there's, I think there's something powerful in, you know, the repetition of this body across these various works and various themes, mm-hmm. uh, because it invites a kind of interrogation that I don't think would necessarily occur if I'm, if I were to use random subject. It might be easy for people to dismiss some of the, the sort of stereotypes that I'm engaging, you know, like, oh, I've seen that kind of body before. I know what that is, right? But when you, when you recognize that this body is repeated across these canvases and in, in, in all of these different ways, you begin to look at the sort of marking and costuming and posturing as critical devices as opposed to essentialisms. Fahamu, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, in what ways does your identity today as an artist, as, as a father, compare to the expectations you had of yourself growing up? Uh, that's a great question. Partly because I don't know what those, if, if I necessarily had expectations. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that kind of surprises me to this day is that nothing that I thought was going to be is the way that I thought it was going to be, you know? And I realized, you know, at, at the point that I determined or decided that I didn't want to allow myself to be dictated by the kinds of stereotypes and and things that that occur in the media, that I was in complete control of who and what I wanted to be and always have been. That life is a a matter of the choices and decisions that we make. And it's really all about how we choose to perceive ourselves that determines who we ultimately can and will be. And I think, you know, in that in that recognition is a really powerful declaration about self, that we have this power, that we have this capacity to shape the world to the way that we need it to be for who we are, as opposed to us being at effect of the world. Uh, one of my favorite human beings is, is Will Smith, and he has this quote where he says, um, being realistic is the most commonly traveled route to mediocrity. And, 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 and that really resonates with me because I think so many of us accept what the world tells us that, that we end up just sort of like putting our heads down and, and, and never trying to, to do or be more than what we're told. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that my art ultimately inspires people to be able to see that they can be and manifest whatever it is that they want. In the end, I always ask my guests this question. If you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, what would it be? But you're an artist. So I am going to ask you if you were to 
use your body to describe America today, uh, what would that portrait look like? I'm going to try my best here. But <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee you that about 10 minutes after after we end this interview, I'm going to have an idea and be like, man, I should have said. <laughs> um, Maybe you could create one, especially the kind of turmoil that America is going through right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, OK, yeah, I think I I think I have an idea. It has something to do with the mirror, you know, and, and, and you, the, the, the point that you just made about the kind of turmoil, I think, is really apropos. I think what we're seeing right now that we're calling turmoil, that we're calling unrest, that we're calling disruption is really reflection. For many, many centuries, America has bought into this idea of itself that has not necessarily been accurate. Aspirational maybe, but certainly not accurate. And I think it's becoming more and more evident now that the things that we have sort of propped ourselves up with are, are fragile and that they are unsustainable and that they are misleading, misdirecting. You know, like uh, I, I love when James Baldwin talks about the idea of the American dream and that this dream is really a very, very perverted sort of uh, manipulation, right? Mm. So as long as, you know, those in power can keep you in a state of, of dreaming, of, of desire, of, of chasing, you don't stop to look around to see what's actually going on. So you can't trouble, you know, the, the system. You can't uh, disrupt the system, because you're, you're you, you know, it's like the matrix, like you're one of the batteries. And now I think people are waking up. There's a lot of those uh, red pills that Morpheus was offering going around. And people are opening their eyes and seeing a true reflection of themselves in this mirror of America. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Fahamu. This was wonderful. Thank you for a great interview. I had so much thank, fun. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. We have a website, www.immigrantlypod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod. And our Instagram is at immigrantlypod. Um, come back next week when we have another amazing story. And in the meantime, stay connected.